Let's get our Bibles out. Philippians chapter 1. Late, but there I am. Philippians chapter 1. Anytime we open up the Word of God together, it's important that before we look at the first word on the first page, it's important that we pray in our heart of hearts, Lord, give me a heart to hear. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to see. Help me to not resist the things of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, in my quiet times, I'm in the book of the Kings and the Chronicles in the Old Testament for my personal devotions. And there are so many times where God would give a word to one of his prophets, and the king didn't want to hear it. The people didn't want to hear it. In fact, sometimes even the priesthood itself was opposed to the work of Jeremiah. A godly man who heard from God. False prophets all around who told the kings and the people what they wanted to hear. But Jeremiah was coming and telling them an unpopular message that God was going to bring judgment against the nation. But nobody wanted to hear it. A nation is only strong as the individuals that make up the nation. If there is a corrective word for you in God's word, are you willing to receive it? Or will you harden your heart and say, I don't want to hear that. Jim's stepping on my toes today. Your toes have nothing to do with it. It has to do with your heart. So think a little higher than your toes. I'm not here to step on your toes. But if there is something in myself or something in you that God wants to change, be open to that. Don't resist that. Or there's really no point of any of us coming to church. If we don't hear from God, what's the point? If I'm not challenged to higher ground spiritually, why are we even here? It, 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 we, do, we shouldn't come just because, well, I've always come to church. That's what we do. Come to church to meet God. And let God inside the door of your heart. So every message has to start not with me, not the Word. In fact, I've come this morning prepared. I even baptized my notes with my wife's iced tea this morning. Uh, so it may come off a little wrinkled this morning, but... Being baptized, uh, <laughs> I want God to baptize me with his Holy Spirit every time we come in his name. To that end, I just want you to pray with me a very brief prayer. And in your heart of hearts, uh, just say, Lord Jesus, I open up my heart and ask that you make it your home. That you would speak to me this morning. That you would bless me with your presence and cause your face to shine upon us. We who call upon your name this morning, Heavenly Father, in the mighty and all-glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. I love this book. And it's written when Paul is under house arrest. If there is a theme to this book, it is joy. You don't find a lot of joy typically in penitentiaries and jails and those kind of, of, of places but Paul is under house arrest here. He's not per se in a jail cell. He's under house arrest. He's awaiting trial. And as a Roman citizen, they weren't going to incarcerate him before he was found guilty of a crime. So he's waiting for time in Caesar's schedule to be seen. And as a Roman citizen, he had appealed to Caesar himself, seeing that he couldn't get a fair trial anywhere in Judea which necessitated that he had to travel to Rome. But he's under house arrest, which means that the Roman authorities would allow him to rent a place of his own, 
but he had to be chained to a Roman legionnaire 24-7. And rather than throw a pity party about that, Paul's thinking to himself, I mean, Paul saw everything that happened to him as the will of God. You and I typically don't. We see good things. We see bad things. We see things that are pleasant. I don't like this. It's unpleasant. We don't tend to see everything in life as something that God has allowed and will use for His glory and my benefit ultimately. The Bible says all things work together for the good of those who praise God, love God, and are called according to His purposes. We do, and yet we want to dodge that bullet. I don't want anything unpleasant happening to me. That's your flesh talking. That's your flesh talking. The Holy Spirit of God sometimes accomplishes things in our difficulties that otherwise would not. What Paul, one of the many lessons Paul was learning is that he can be content in all circumstances and he can find joy in all circumstances. You're going to find in the, there's only four chapters in this little book, but 16 times he uses this word joy, joy, joy. And you're thinking, don't you know where you're at? You're eating flat meat sandwiches and drinking water. It's not like you're being well fed at the Broadmoor in, in jail there. You got nothing. And Paul's singing to him, says, yes, I do. I'm here by the will of God. I've got a captive audience I can witness to and share my faith with. And Christians are coming and going all the time. And during the two years that he was under house arrest, he wrote four of these so-called prison epistles. But you'd never know it looking at how often he mentions joy. Now, there's a secret there because you and I most likely don't walk in joy when we're walking in trials. The reason is, your flesh doesn't want to be uncomfortable. Can I tell you, God doesn't give a rip about your flesh. He's trying to make you a spiritual person. Don't fight him on this. Sometimes he uses glorious mountaintop experiences where, man, we're in the Word of God. God's talking to us, the praise and worship. Like this morning, it just ushers us into his presence, and it's glorious. And you just say, I wish I could stay there all the time. This mountaintop experience, like the three disciples up on the top of Mount Transfiguration with Jesus. Oh, we want to see him transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up. The voice of God, it was amazing. You should have been there. I'm sure they were telling the other disciples for years. Here's the problem. The fruit doesn't grow on the mountaintops. It grows in the valleys. While encounters with God on the mountaintop experiences, Moses receiving the law, hearing the voice of God is a glorious thing. There's work to be done in the trenches when you get down off the mountaintops. Your church experience on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and during the week when you're in the Word of God, that should be your mountaintop experience. That's your equipping. That's where God meets you right where you're at, lifts you up, climbs up the ladder with you and says, you can do this, and then sends you out into a sinful, fallen world to carry on his work and ministry as his ambassadors the rest of the week. But understand that this is your equipping session. Why? Tomorrow's coming. Like it or not, tomorrow's coming. And he's not concerned with how comfortable you are in your flesh. 
any more than Paul's. Paul learned to be joyful under difficult circumstances. He learned to be content in all circumstances. You got a handle on that one yet? Then this letter's written for you. Just insert your name here. It's not written to the Philippians, although did you know that most of us are related to the Philippians? The Philippians are Europeans. Most of us in this room came from Europe, if you take our ancestry back far enough. We are the descendants of Japheth, who spread, his family spread throughout all of Europe and Spain and Greece and those parts of, of the world today. So in a very real sense, because he's not writing to Jews, he meets these people where they're at. They're Greeks. They were delivered from a pagan background, a very worldly background. So he never quotes the Old Testament once. Why? They don't know Hebrew. They don't know the Old Testament history. And as far as Paul's concerned, does it matter how much history you know? Do you know Christ? Do you know Jesus? And that's what he's going to share, that Christ is sufficient to meet us in any circumstance, in any time, and restore to us the joy of our salvation. So if you're kind of beat down by the world, this is your book. If you want to find contentment in all circumstances, this is your book. If you need a sense of hope, this is your book. It's the most joyous book in the, in the whole Bible, only four short chapters. I've often thought to myself, if I were marooned on a desert island somewhere in the deep South Pacific and I, I could only have one book of the Bible, what book would it be? The book of Revelation? Nope. I know Jesus is coming back, and that's all that book tells me. Who cares what happens after the church is raptured and the stuff that's played out here for seven years? I got a handle on the book of Revelation. Gives me hope. Jesus coming back. Don't need that one. Genesis, in the beginning. I know what happened in the beginning. Read that book. So where I find myself is desiring to be encouraged in the book of Philippians. Does that better than any book of the Bible? As short as it is, it is so powerful. For two years, Paul is in jail, allowing him to catch up on his correspondence, and you almost hear nothing of his imprisonment, and you hear everything about Jesus. You hear everything about joy. You hear everything about contentment. His ministry being jailed and being chained to these Roman legionnaires was so fruitful that later on he'll write, oh, those in Caesar's palace, the imperial guard, send you their greetings. Paul, <laughs> way to go, buddy. He's been winning those guys to faith in Christ Jesus. It was glorious. And so Paul could say, I'm here by the will of God. There's people that need Jesus in this jail. These Romans, they need Jesus. Nero himself needs Jesus. I don't doubt at all he had two years to pray for Nero, one of the most serious nutcases that ever sat on the throne of Rome. Do you see where God has placed you in life as the perfect will of God? You're in the army by the perfect will of God. You're, in, you're, you're a housewife by the perfect will of God. You're a, a school teacher or an aerospace engineer or a, a thousand other things. You're there by the will of God, and you go, but Pastor Jim, I don't like my job. I didn't ask you if you liked your job. God didn't ask you if you liked your job. But can I tell you this? He knows what he's doing. He places his people where they're needed most. I'm surrounded by pray pagans. That's right. That's your mission field. That's why you're there. 
Don't grumble against it. Oh, I just can't find any contentment here. Really? You ought to read the book of Philippians some more. It's a glorious book. Philippi was a Greek city uh, named after King Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, about 350 years before Paul's time. It was a prosperous city. Northeastern Greece, a proud city. They They prided themselves on being citizens of Rome. They dressed like the Romans. They talked like the Romans. In fact, a lot of Romans throughout the empire, when they would retire, were given a stipend and a piece of land in Philippi. So Philippi was one of those rare cities that was called a city of Rome. You were automatically a citizen of Rome. And I know that's what encourages Paul to consider writing the church and say, consider your citizenship. Are you citizens of Rome? You Philippians that live here and take pride in, I know the Roman language and I dress like a Roman and I talk like a Roman. You take pride in that or do you know that your real citizenship is in heaven? That's where you're a citizen of. And Paul will challenge us in the same way. They come out of a background that was pagan. They had worshipped the Greco-Roman gods. Some of them spoke Latin on occasion. A lot of retired military community. Sounds like Colorado Springs. My dad lived here, moved here first with the United States Air Force, and he was out at Pete Field back in 1961. And we've pretty much lived here since. And a lot of retired are, are in our community. You've got to meet people where they're at. Some of you are, 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 have experiences in life that allow you to share with people I never will. I'm in communication uh, lately with a Vietnam War veteran, and he's got some issues. Anybody who's been in combat knows what PTSD is like. It seems to always be on the periphery, and yet this guy is overwhelmingly uh, in love with Jesus, has the joy of the Lord about him. And, in fact, we ought to give a shout-out to Eduardo. He's watching us from Pueblo West this morning. So if you'd turn around and look at the camera and go, Hi, Eduardo! (laughs) How's Ed doing today? (laughs) Neat guy who was blessed the church. We love you, brother. Thank you so much. Meet people where they're at. I tried to get into the Vietnam War, and you go, You what? I was going to college at the time trying to finish my degree so I could fly jets in Vietnam. And they called off, get this, they called off the war before I could finish my degree with a gall. (laughs) God had different plans. God God had different plans. But to be able to talk with brothers and sisters, even if we don't share a common job experience background, we can center our conversation around Jesus Christ. How's your walk with the Lord? What have you been reading lately? Can I pray for you about something? That builds family automatically. Apart from language, job experience, age, background, likes or dislikes or political affiliations, what binds us together is the blood of Christ. We're in this together. Like it or not, we are family, and that's just not a line from an 80s uh, tune. We are family, in fact, and indeed, like family. (sighs) Some of you are irritable teenagers. That's okay. Love you, love you anyway. Love you anyway. The elders of the church will be your spiritual mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. We're all in this thing together, so we're never alone. 
in actuality, are we? we can, we're free in Christ Jesus to love each other, to pray for each other, to come alongside of each other, to encourage each other. And that's what Paul is doing through the writing of this letter. He didn't have email or computers or anything like that back then, but he could write out something on parchment or have one of his buddies do that. Say, I just want to bless those guys. Tell them I'm thinking about them. Love on them for a little bit. Do you know who the first pastor of the church was after Paul that established the church and, and moved on in his itinerant ministry? Uh, tradition says that it was Luke, the physician, that was the pastor of the church for six years and then accompanied Paul on the rest of his missionary journeys as his personal physician because he had some sort of medical issue that he'd asked God to heal him of, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and God said, no. My grace is sufficient. More lessons to be learned. Even Paul, even Paul learning, growing. The church is now about 10 or 11 years old, and he writes them uh, just this letter of gratitude and thanks for a financial gift that they'd sent him. I'm sure it came down something like this. He's imprisoned in Rome, but he's in, in a house that he has had to rent himself. Maybe you've been in this position where you rent a house and you thought you could make the payments on it, and when it comes down to it, it's so tight, you're wondering, I either have to skip a meal or my car insurance to make the house payment. The rent is due. You ever been in that place where the rent's due in just the next day or two, and you're looking at your bank account, and you're going, man, it ain't there. It just ain't there. What are you supposed to do? Well, the world says you're supposed to freak out. That's what you're supposed to do. The Bible says you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to seek God. And so Paul is probably in a situation not dissimilar from that where the rent is due and it's either here or a, a Roman dungeon if he can no longer afford to pay the rent on this rented house of his while he's awaiting his trial. But Paul was a man of faith, and, and I'm sure he was on his prayer bones pretty much 24-7. And the Philippians had heard that he was in jail, that he was in a rented house, and decided, why don't we send him a love gift? So he opens his mail in jail that day and says, looky, looky, love, check for $15,000. <laughs> I can make rent again. <laughs> Hallelujah. We're here for at least another 30 days. God provides. How many of us have a testimony where God has provided at the last minute and it was glorious and it came from a place that you never thought it had come from? That happens often. In times past in this church when we didn't have money to pay the rent, God would provide one way or another. Sometimes it was a financial gift. Other times it was grace and mercy and the owners of the building said, eh, don't worry about it. Get, catch up when you can. If you can, <laughs> grace, mercy, but God undertook for us time and time and time again. The imperial guard, these 10,000 elite soldiers, whose job it was in Rome was to guard the emperor, these are the guys that he's chained to. So these are elite soldiers that were stationed in Rome itself. And in the midst of all of this rejoicing that takes place throughout this letter here, I have to remind myself, he sounds so joyful, you assume his situation is good. It's pleasant. He's probably on vacation in the Bahamas somewhere, sipping a drink with little umbrellas in it, right? He's in jail. He's in jail. He's, he has caught 
something that we all of us have been trying to catch ever since. Can I be joyous in the Lord despite difficult circumstances? Listen, it all depends on whether your eyes on your circumstances or the Lord. That's 100%. You want joy in difficult circumstances? You want victory? You want contentment? It's on you. You can either look on the plane of the flesh, look at what's wrong in your circumstances and in, in your own body or the doctor's report or your job situation or a thousand other things, and you can look on that and get depressed to the nth degree. You can turn on the evening news and just obsess with everything that is wrong in the world and the corruption that abounds and the list goes on. Or you can elevate your eyesight. Can I ask you this? Is God on the throne? Has he always been on the throne? Will he always be on the throne? Then I have joy in that. You see, my circumstances can change 24-7. They can change in a New York second. He never changes his plan for my life, it never changes. So the joy of my salvation, if I'm looking at the right thing, will never be diminished. He loves me. He's on the throne. He sent his son to pay the price. And Jesus is, as we speak this morning, preparing a dwelling place for you and I. And as soon as it's done, he's coming back to take us so that where he is, we may be also. Paul will later say, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Have you learned that one yet? You should keep working on it. God doesn't want your, your spiritual walk to look like a roller coaster. Oh, it's good circumstances. Oh, it's bad. Oh, it's good. It's bad. Oh. That's not what your life is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be onward and upward. That's where we're headed. That's fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. It doesn't say fix your eyes on yourself or your circumstances or your health or your finances. That'll rob you of the joy of your salvation. There's fault to be found in those things. Paul said, I know what it's like to have plenty. I, I know what it's like to have nothing. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. In other words, I'm content because my contentment does not lie in my circumstances, but in my relationship with God, and that is unchanging. Jesus has me right there in the palm of his hand. I am his. He is mine. I'm hidden with Christ in God. This is good stuff. So my contentment shouldn't change either. I'm okay. I'm okay this morning. How are you? Are you contented? Are you, is your heart at peace and rest? If it's not, you're doing something wrong. And this book, this message is for you. God wants happy, fulfilled, and contented Christians. Don't be the Christian that fights him on it. He loves you. Why would you want to be miserable, upset, robbed of joy, and, and everything? Why would you want that when God has so much for you? My circumstances may change. I, I might find myself in difficulty from time to time, but my contentment isn't in those things. It never has been. Can I be content with COVID-19 laying in bed for two weeks? Yeah. 
It's like a two-week mini vacation where I'm laying flat on my back looking straight up. Got nothing else to do but pray. Seek His face. I'm good. I'm good. It's important for us to find our contentment in Christ Jesus uh, so we can learn that whatever our condition, we can be content. Paul starts off here in the text by describing himself in some unusual terms. Paul and Timothy, his protege, this young man that was a pastor in training, servants of Christ Jesus, hmm, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all of the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off a lot of his letters to churches by describing himself as an apostle called by the will of God. This one's a lot less formal than that. He has an established relationship with these people. He started the church. He knows them. He loves them. Church is now about 10 years, 11 years old. Some people have come and gone. Some have passed away, I'm sure. But what it reminds me of is he has a relationship with these people. It's not just church. It's not just sermonizing. He has a relationship with these people. He loves these people, and they, all of them, love the Lord. Young Timothy is with Paul, and it reminds me how important fellowship and compassion and companionship, excuse me, are. Fellowship, that's why we have these fellowship opportunities at church, like breakfast before church, like the men's group, the Wednesday night, home fellowships, the list goes on and on. But they are opportunities for you to engage in relationships. And some of you, can I just be honest, you're just a little bit antisocial. You know it. You, you, you discount it by saying, well, I'm an introvert. Get prayer. Get prayer. You can come out of that shell. You don't have to live like a tortoise in the kingdom of God, pulling your head inside anytime there's more than six people in the room. You can trust God on this. And maybe those are God-sent opportunities for you to develop relationships and invest in somebody besides yourself. Now, there's a novel thought. You mean, Pastor Jim, it's not about me? <laughs> you know it's not. But we have these opportunities we need each other. Paul needed Timothy. Timothy desperately needed this father figure that he had in Paul. More than just a father figure, one who showed him what his heavenly father was like. Timothy was a Greek as well. Despised by the Jews at times, Paul had been kicked out of more synagogues than you and I have ever attended. Not a popular man. Imagine a man who came to our church and says, I'd like to preach in your church. Well, what's your qualifications? Well, I've been in jail half a dozen times. I've been beat with rods. I've been mocked, been made fun, been shipwrecked, been called names, been imprisoned, whipped, beat, you name it. But I like to preach in your church. And most of us will go, no, no. In fact, I wonder how many of our churches in America Jesus wouldn't be welcome at. There's some church say, well, we don't use the word sin here. And they won't like Jesus at all because he used the word a lot. We don't use the word repentance here. They won't like Jesus because he implied that that was a very important thing to do. Would Paul and Timothy be welcome here? They describe themselves in the most humble of terms, servants of Christ Jesus in verse 1. Literally slaves. 
slaves. Douloi, common household servants is how they describe themselves. Literally a person that, that waits on other people like a table waiter in a restaurant. It's not a term that says, look at me, how important I am, how well-trained I am, how eloquent I am. The emphasis was always on the Lord and not himself. They are servants of Christ Jesus. Every pastor should be a servant of his church, not the guy necessarily you look to and say, oh, he's in charge. He's the boss. He's the CEO. He's the tyrant of Calvary Chapel Eastside. God forbid. God forbid. The pastoral staff here and the deacons and elders are here to serve you. That's what we're here for. The greatest aspiration you and I should have as Christians is to be a servant. Didn't Jesus say the servant would be greatest title of all? Nothing greater than being a servant. You serve him, and in doing so, you serve others. Time and time again, this issue of servanthood comes up. A slave. Now, there were two kinds of slave in Hebrew tradition. You could be a slave because you got yourself in debt, didn't have the money to repay it, so you sold yourself into voluntary slavery. And for seven years, you would serve another master. But once your debt was paid off, well, you were free to go back to re and return to society and were no longer a slave. But every once in a while, a slave would be treated so well by his owner, the slave would say, can I just stay with you? You've been such a great boss. I'm well fed. The circumstances here are just wonderful. You've been great to me. Can I, can I just be your slave forever? And if both parties were willing, the owner would take the voluntary servant and he'd take him to the door of his house and he would take an awl. Just imagine the mother of all ice picks. And he would take the lobe of the slave's ear, put it up against the wood, and say something like this, this is really going to hurt. You sure you want to do this? It's voluntary. You don't have to do this. And the slave says, I want to be yours the rest of my life. Blood has to be shed. We, too, have a blood covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't our blood that was shed. It was his. He purchased us with his blood. So the New Testament tells us we are not our own. We belong to him. We've been bought with a great price, the blood of God's own son. So I'm not a free servant anymore. I used to be a slave to my sin. I used to be a slave to the world and technology and the bosses of this world and the attractions and distractions of this world. We're all a slave to somebody or something. Every single one of us in this room is a slave to something or someone. Some are in slavery in the world to drugs. Some are in bondage to alcohol. The incessant need to have the lusts of the flesh satiated. They live for technology. They live for success. They live for money. They, everybody serves a God. Everybody serves. Who's yours? Who's yours? Have you given yourself wholeheartedly to him? Are you that servant like Paul and Timothy where you say, Lord, you shed your blood for me, so the least I can do is say, I am yours and yours forever. I want to be your servant. 
That's the price of discipleship, isn't it? What's it cost you to be a Christian? Everything. Jesus said, count the cost. Don't start off on this and then back up and say, nope, don't want this anymore. It's too hard. It's too difficult. The cost's too high. The cost has already been paid. The only thing you and I have to do is surrender. Surrender to the God who loves us. Don't fight God this side of glory, please. Just say, not my will, but yours be done. And how he describes the people of the church, look at that, the second sentence there, or the second part of, of verse 1, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus. And you instantly think, well, he ain't talking to me. I'm no saint. In one sense, you're absolutely right. You are not deserving of salvation. You didn't purchase your salvation. All you did was surrender to the love offer of God Almighty. You said, I sent my son. Would you receive him as Lord and Savior? Would you turn your life over to him? And the smart ones in the room said, yep. We became voluntary bondservants. Nobody forced me to do this. I wasn't sold into slavery in the Roman Empire. I've been delivered from my slavery to the world and the sin and the lust of my old nature by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you need to realize you've been set free from the struggles that you have in the flesh. You're sitting in a jail cell, but the cell has been open since the day you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but you still place yourself in bondage to pornography or computers or lust or games or technology or a thousand other false gods. But understand this, Christ died to open the cell. It's open. Walk out of the cell. You're not in bondage to that stuff anymore. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He's greater than the lusts that you have. Because of this relationship you have with God, you have to come into that, the presence of that God all the time to renew His strength. He fills you with His Holy Spirit again, baptizes you afresh as often as you want it or desire. He wants to baptize you with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And some of you got no control. You're in bondage to the lusts of the flesh. You say, Pastor Jim, did my wife call you? Didn't have to. God's got your number. God's got your number. Don't remain in bondage when Christ has set you free. Walk in that freedom. Trust in His holiness. When we use the word saints, and that is the root word in the Greek, it is holy. Those who are not holy, in one sense you and I are not, because we're fleshly, we have a sinful nature. But in another sense, all of us have been made holy by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the wording that is used here. To all of the saints, all of those that have trusted in Christ, that He has declared to be holy. Just imagine that Jesus declares you holy this morning. Without spot, without blemish. And He loves you. And the future that He has for you you couldn't even begin to imagine how glorious it is. We get a taste of heaven on earth the moment we're saved, and it just grows with every passing day that we invest in this relationship with God Almighty. 
But what is yet to come is unfathomable. And I've got a really good imagination, and I can't, I can't get there. I look at these picture books, and picture books are my favorite because they don't have words. But they sometimes, if a picture is, a, is like a thousand words, sometimes you want to look at these pictures of the universe or other galaxies that are out there, and you consider the numbers of stars and the distances that, that God has created between what appears to be a nearly endless universe, and he loves me. Who am I that he should love me? Do you realize if you're standing on Pluto, you can't even see Earth? It's that infinitesimally small. Realize that? Can't even see Earth. It's of no consequence. It's a pebble in a universe of pebbles. It's a speck of sand. But God created life on this planet, and he created us to have fellowship with him. And because of our fellowship with him, it makes fellowship with each other not only possible but profitable. And wonderful. You are a saint. Look at your neighbor next to you and just say, you're a saint. Now say it back to him. Now wives and our husbands are looking at each other going, yeah, you ain't no saint. <laughs> back it up. Back it up. You have been declared to be a saint. Holy. Made holy by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So regardless of what looks at you in the mirror... That's not your true identity of who you are in Christ. You're clothed in His righteousness. Why? Because you had none. So He gave you His own. He shed His blood on the cross to pay the penalty that your sins and mine deserve. There are no sins that you have anymore to be forgiven. It's been washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, you are holy. You may not feel holy, but I don't see the word feelings here in, in chapter 1 at all. Why do we place so much important on them? importance on them? Because Satan's still alive and well and wants you to doubt who you actually are in Christ Jesus. How do I stay affirmed in who I am in Christ Jesus? The Word of God. Prayer. Fellowship with the saints. Communion. Ah. We got to keep our spiritual batteries recharged. And notice that the church, even though it's only 10 or 11 years old, in verse 1, has multiple overseers. Some of your uh, versions that you may have say bishops. It doesn't say bishop in the Greek. It says episkopos. Epi means over or upon. Skopos is where you get the word telescope. In other words, the, the pastors of the church have oversight. It doesn't mean that the pastors do everything in the church, but I'm held accountable by God for the oversight of everything. That doesn't mean I know everything. In fact, I virtually know nothing. I tell people that say, well, Pastor Jim, you know, what's going on in Sunday school? Where's the age breakup and stuff? And I go, no idea. I just preach here. That's my gift as a pastor teacher, but I have oversight of it. So when you go back and talk to the Sunday school teacher, well, they talk to me that week. You, you talk to the deacons and elders, well, we've been in communication with each other regularly, the pastoral staff, because we have a relationship. You, you can feel free to inquire of them at all, at all times at all. In fact, if you ever need per, Tracy's personal cell phone number or Pastor John Marks, I, I'll give you their personal cell phone numbers. But you can only call them after 3 o'clock in the morning. Tell them Pastor Jim sent you, and they're called to be servants. <laughs> you know, I like it when we can get together, though, and just be family. 
Not theologians, nobody trying to impress anybody, just loving on each other, just encouraging each other. You see folks down here praying, you see praise and worship folks with their hands raised. You know, we're going to be spending eternity together. Doesn't it just make sense to get to know each other a little bit here and now? Pray for each other, love on each other here and now? Absolutely. But this little church, there was no mega church by any stretch of the imagination, but they've got multiple pastors, overseers, it would be the best interpretation of episcopoi in the plural, and there were multiple, a number of deacons as well there. It wasn't a mega church, but grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Say joy. <laughs> because of your partnership. Paul says, I may be the apostle, but we're in this together. It's more than just teacher and student. It's almost like a spiritual father figure speaking to his children. In dear and precious terms here, he's not full of himself. He's full of love with others. For others. In all of my prayers, verse 4, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Here's your highlighter passage. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, God is never going to give up on you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to turn his back on you. You may have some highs and lows. You may have some prodigal experiences, but the love of God is a constant that's more constant than the speed of light throughout the universe. He loves you, and he will never love you less than he does now, and he could not love you more. Isn't that an amazing statistic? Oh, he could not love me more? Mm, grace and peace to you. And it, Paul always places the men that are, because you've experienced the grace of God, you can also experience the peace of God that, pan, that transcends all understanding. But grace must precede peace. In verse 3, I, I, we get a snapshot of his prayer life. Thanksgiving is a big part of his prayer life. Remembering other people in prayer, it's a big part of Paul's prayer life. His prayer life didn't consume itself with his situation. A lot of us tend to pray for ourselves a lot, and we tend to pray for others less. For Paul, it was exactly the opposite. He prayed for others constantly, was encouraging them. There was always this spirit of thanksgiving in this particular case, because of their financial gift, but also because of their salvation, their partnership in the gospel with him. Uh, and, and they had sent him an unexpected financial gift. <laughs> that happens once in a while. And it seems to come from places you just would not have imagined in your wildest dreams. There was times where Kathy and I were out in seminary uh, many, many years ago now, and and things were so tight with me being a, we were living in an apartment complex, and Kathy would rent the apartments out and show them during the day, and I'd do a touch of the maintenance stuff when I came home at 5 o'clock from, from seminary. But there were times we just didn't have the money for much of nothing. There was one time my son Luke 
uh, went into status epilepticus, which is uncontrolled seizures that don't stop. The problem with the seizures, you can die from them. With, because all of the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm is also having a seizure, there is no effective respiration during a seizure. And my two-year-old son was dying. We ran him to the hospital as fast as we could. They diagnosed it as uh, he previously had a shunt installed because he was born with hydrocephalus. And they said, we got to do emergency surgery on him. They said, by the way, the guy, the guy who's doing the surgery is, is a... Uh, is at UC Irvine. He's a teaching fellowship and one, and one of the most premier uh, pediatric neurosurgeons west of the Mississippi River. He's going to be doing the surgery on your son. And they said, by the way, how do you plan on paying for this? Well, I wasn't working. I was going to school full-time and doing maintenance on the side. All we got for a salary was a free apartment and utilities. And I said, I don't know how we're going to pay for this. Why don't we say, why don't we see if my son lives first? And she, she wandered off muttering something in, about terms I, I didn't understand. He and Kathy went back to praying, and uh, it was a long and arduous surgery. Gal comes back after a while, and she says, well, got, got good news for you. And I said, yeah, what's that? And she says, I've uh, applied, we've applied for Medi-Cal. And I go, what, what's, I don't know what Medi-Cal is. Well, it's state-run insurance for indigents, and you qualify because you're dirt broke poor. I didn't like being dirt broke poor. And I said, well, what does that mean in concrete terms? She says, state of California's going to pick up the whole tab for your son's brain surgery and doctor and hospital stay. I didn't see that coming. But if we hadn't been in that situation, I'd have never seen that miracle. Some of you are in a situation where you're dirt broke poor. And God has you there because he wants to show you how good and great he is. And he wants you to trust him. And he's going to send deliverance in a way you never saw coming. You didn't anticipate because he is God and you are not. Your job is to trust him, not freak out. Be the best steward you can be of all that God has given you. But sometimes that is not enough and you need a miracle. And God wants to provide one. A financial gift had come to them. I remember another time where uh, I, we were on our, our last meal. And, and Kathy, that morning as I walked out, out of the, the house to go to seminary for Greek class at 7.30 in the morning, uh, I, I said something like, well, what's for dinner tonight? She goes, we don't have any food left. And there was literally nothing in the cabinets. And I got a family of five. And I know I'm here by the will of God. I know I, I followed his, his call and tried to go to seminary and equip me to be a, a better pastor. And uh, Kathy said, what are we going to do? I didn't know. What we're going to do is trust God. How's God going to provide? I have no idea. I have no idea at all, but this I know. He's a faithful God. Amen. He's a faithful God. And so as I went to push the door open in this converted garage that we were using as an apartment uh, in this couple's house, I couldn't open the screen door on the outside. And I looked down, 
And there's bags of groceries in front of the door stoop. Now, nobody at seminary knew where I lived. I had no idea. We'd not made our need known to anybody, but I couldn't. There was, there was groceries right there at the screen door. And I had no idea that God was going to provide that way. That was the first of thousands of times where God has come through for us in times just like he's come through for you. Don't doubt him in the future. He has been so faithful to you in the past. Trust God. That's the whole lesson that you and I, this side of glory, must learn. Understand that God has dedicated himself to your personal spiritual growth. And sometimes that's through difficulties. Don't despise the difficulties. Pray. Trust God. He loves you and delights in showing himself to you in ways that you could not even begin to understand. Verse 6, I am confident of this as well, that he who began a good work in you, the Lord God Almighty himself, will carry on that good work until it is complete, until the day of Christ Jesus. He has dedicated himself to your spiritual growth. As you are in the Word of God and in prayer and in fellowship and going to church and communion and, and the things that make Christians strong, I'll tell you what, he is going to conform you to the image of his Son. It's a process. takes time. Don't fight him on it. Get in the Word of God. Get in, the, in prayer mode, fellowship mode. Paul says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We've all been saved. We've all been kept by the glory of God. We've all been provided for by a loving Heavenly Father. We all have this in common. Some of us have seen great miracles and some of us are waiting for those great miracles to yet come. He's a God of miracles. Prayer with Paul was a constant. That's why he could write the Thessalonian church and say, pray without ceasing. In other words, don't stop praying. Pray continually. He said, be joyful always to the Thessalonian believers, also in Greece. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? This is God's will for you. I get asked that question all the time. Pastor Jim, what's God's will for me? Do I look like God to you? Ask Him. Ask Him. But here is a section of Scripture written by God Himself that says, this is God's will. Do you want to highlight this? Anytime in Scripture God tells you, this is my will, want to take note of that. Give thanks in all circumstances. Say all. All, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the Holy Spirit by a failure to pray. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. But that's the partnership that we have in this. I need your prayers. I delight in praying for you guys. But know this, it's a partnership. Tell me you're doing your part. Tell me you're praying for Pastor Jim. Don't make me sick my dog on you. Pray for Pastor Jim. Pray for Pastor Jim's family, children and grandchildren, some of whom are facing some terrible situations, medical conditions that I can do nothing about. 
But God is faithful, verse 6, to He is going to carry it to completion. It's work that He has begun in me. Verse 9, and here's where we wrap up with verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer. Again, prayer so important to Paul, and it should be to us. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He prays for a fresh baptism of love. Your marriage needs it. Your family needs it. The church desperately needs you to be walking in the love and grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said of all faith and hope and love, the greatest of these is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if we don't have love, we don't have enough. We got nothing. We got nothing. He doesn't, God doesn't care how smart you are, how learned you are, how many degrees you have. He cares that you're loving one another. It takes place in your relationship with God where He pours His love into you. Only then are you fit to minister to those in your closest familial circles. Then can you love each other with the love of the Lord. Then you can come to church and you got something to give. Instead of being so introverted, you don't give nothing. You can't dip water out of an empty well. If you are not filled with love, you bring nothing to the body of Christ. It's all about love. What does that love look like? Mm, thought you'd never ask. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, Paul says, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. I'll bet you our drummer back there has a cowbell. Nobody likes a cowbell. Nice smooth fills and some drums and cymbals, oh, that's glorious stuff. But I don't want to hear a resounding gong. But Paul says, without love, that's all we are. We're making a lot of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, Paul says, and I have knowledge and I have all faith that can move mountains, as Jesus said, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's what the love of God, agape, looks like. I hope this is what you look like. I hope this is what you are filled with. And if your cup is half empty, you have the opportunity to pray that Jesus would fill it up. Right here. Right now. Love is patient. Are you? Love is kind. Are you? It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Oh, let me make a Greek scholar of you. The word easily is not in the Greek. It says love isn't angered. That sets a whole new standard, doesn't it? Love is not angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. There's already people in this room elbowing each other. Did you hear that? Don't remind me of my failures again. Well, you always say this. Don't you remember six years ago when we had this argument? We went to the restaurant. And you spilled something on that expensive tie I bought you, and the guy's going, I have no idea what you're talking about. What's that? It's keeping a record of wrongs. Don't do it. Forgive. Let it go. 
in the scheme of eternity, what does it matter? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It's a description of God's love for you. 1 Corinthians 13. And because the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5 starts off with love, that should be the primary characteristic that your family sees in you. The greatest of these is love. Pastor Jim, I'm failing muster here. I ain't got it. Pray that you get it. Acknowledging the fact that you are not as loving as Christ intended means that you have some spiritual homework to do. Pray and say, God, forgive me. I've blown it. I haven't been as loving as you wanted me to be. I haven't, I haven't been filled with this love that Pastor Jim just described that I find so far above my head I can, I can barely see it. Lord God Almighty, would you fill me afresh with the fruit of your Holy Spirit? Would you fill me afresh with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Because I have so little in and of myself. Would you baptize me afresh? Would you fill me afresh? Because otherwise you come to church and you're trying to dip water out of an empty well. If you don't have it, you can't give it. The answer is to let the, the king of the universe fill your cup full. Then you got something to give your family, your friends, your co-workers. It comes from him, not from yourself. You can't drum it up, can't muster it up. So, verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. That's God's expectation of you. Keep away from the things of this world that pollute the soul. And I don't have to go into detail about those things. You already know what they are. The things that defile you inside, that soil your soul. You got to stay away from those things. You say, well, I'm addicted to them. I can't. You're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are no longer a slave to the things of this world. Know who you are and affirm who you are in Christ Jesus. Ask him to strengthen you, give you wisdom, discernment, and insight. Verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, till he comes back. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, that's right living. That's the things that you do because you're spirit-filled and in love with Jesus and filled with the love of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's not stuff you muster up. It's stuff that's imparted to you the closer you get to Christ. How do I get close to Christ? Try reading the only book he ever wrote. Study to show thyself approved, is how the old King Jimmy version puts that, as Paul writes his protege. Study to show yourself approved. Well, sometimes they get lost in the details. Get a study Bible. Get an easy-to-read translation. The, the New Living Translation is a wonderful alternative for those that don't want to learn Greek or some heady language and put it in terms that most all of us can, can understand. But I don't want you to look at this letter and you go, well, so far, Pastor Jim, nice letter. Cordial, friendly, maybe even diplomatic. 
Maybe just it's just a letter of thanks, right? No. It's much more than that. It's the inspired, inerrant Word of God able to make you and I grow and mature as Christians. That's why I point out the personal application of these verses. I actually expect you to do it. God actually expects you to do it. I didn't write the book, so my expectations of you mean little. But he wrote the book. You have just heard the Word of God. Now it is yours to implement the Word of God. Take it home with you. Talk it over with your spouse or those of you that are married. Talk it over with your children. In fact, the Deuteronomic law said always be discussing the Lord in your homes. It sanctifies your homes as well as your hearts. Do you guys talk about the Word of God when you're at home? Do you study the Word of God together? Do you pray together? Do you, do you encourage each other in the Lord? This is the Word of God and able to do supernatural things. Paul would write Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 and says, All Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's how you get it. Get in the Word of God. Do you read daily? You got to. These are the last days. I don't know what you're waiting for before you decide to get plumb serious about your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not good days to be a lazy, half-hearted, Laodicean Christian. Don't do that. Christ is coming back soon, and the Middle East is going to blow up like a nuclear warhead any time. You ready? If Christ would show up in the clouds today, this afternoon, are you there? Are you in fellowship with Him? Are you in love with Him? Are you walking in love and grace and mercy? The closer you get to the source, the more these things become a part of your life. Because as Paul said, in my flesh dwells what? No good thing. Same is true for yours. So your choice this morning, walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh? Which are you going to choose? Walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh? I'm going to be either fleshly minded or spiritually minded. I'm either going to walk in the holiness and purity of God or the weakness and failure of my flesh. But the choice is yours. Choose wisely, grasshopper. Be a grateful Christian. Say thank you more often. Guys especially, I can't speak for the ladies because I've never been one. In this age of gender confusion, that's a statement all by itself. But say thank you more often than you do. Guys are not particularly good at that. Guys, say thank you more often to God and to man. And my prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Set your eyes on Christ. Live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And I can tell you this, everything's going to turn out just fine. Let's stand together and close in prayer, shall we? I love this book. I love this book. I, I, I hear your voice. This book, it carries your fingerprints. It challenges me. It encourages me. It blesses me. And it confronts me with the fact that I need to learn and grow and change for the benefit of my family, my children, my grandchildren, and these precious sheep that you gather in this house week by week. We're so blessed to know how much you love us. We're so blessed to have this partnership in the gospel. We're all in this together. 
So Lord, teach us what it means to love one another, to love you and to seek you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength these last days as we see the coming nearness of your Son. My heart cry is out. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Prepare your church for that day. We are your church, blood-bought. We are yours. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.